So we're starting a new series today, Know Your Enemy. We're going to spend four weeks today. We're going to talk about the accuser. Next week, we're going to talk about the liar. Then we're going to talk about the tempter. And we're going to end with the deceiver. These are four things that the devil is known for. This is the enemy. This is what he's going to do. This is what he's, how he's going to attack you. And so one of the things I want us to do is I want us to begin to know who our enemy is so that you know how to stand against him. So, in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Your enemy of the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Okay? Resist him standing firm in the faith. Now, it's not an accident that the devil is described like a lion. Not to be confused with the lion of Judah, but his tactics are compared to a lion roaming about looking for someone to devour. So when you begin to think about a lion, they target their prey. You, got, you don't have to watch very much of the Discovery Channel to figure this out. The lion does not go and attack the strongest wildebeest. They don't, even though they're strong enough to, and sometimes they have to by, it's the only one around, but lions, they don't just sit there and say, hey, I want the biggest, baddest dude in this herd, and that's the one we're going to attack. No. They look for weakness. Lions look for the youngest, or the oldest, or the sickest. That's what they do. So when, when, the, when, 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 the, when, when the Lord is warning us and He's telling us about our enemy, He's not making, this is not an accident that He's comparing it to a lion. It's not an accident. So He's saying, listen, what He's going to do is the lion is going to wait in the bushes. And I like this picture because it's really hard to see the lion there. You have to work pretty hard. And if you were just out grazing in the field, that's why they lie in that tall grass waiting and waiting and waiting. You see, the enemy is waiting for your weakness to be revealed and then he pounces. And a lot of times, anybody that's ever been in recovery or about to go into recovery or needs recovery should understand this principle that when you think you've conquered it is usually when you fall. It's when you think you've conquered it and you're like, yeah, I don't have that struggle anymore is typically right when you fall back into it. The Bible says... Be careful when you stand lest you fall. So, the enemy, he's sitting there, he's watching. He's waiting for the right moment to attack your marriage. Come on, husbands. He's waiting for that moment. He's waiting for that moment to attack your children, to attack you when you're alone. He's patient. So the enemy... The devil is like a lion and he's waiting for your weakness to be revealed. Then he will attack you. As we begin to think about this series, I was reading, I've been reading a, a book, um, I've been reading several books, but one of the ones that I'm reading right now is called The Bondage Breaker by Neil T. Anderson. And he makes a quote in there. Unresolved personal and spiritual conflicts lead to poor self-image. Okay? I looked at that and I'm like, wow. So, how many of us sitting in this room have some unresolved 
personal conflicts deep down inside, right? Okay? How many of us have some unresolved spiritual stuff inside of us that's not resolved? What I'm wanting you to understand is that when we have unresolved conflicts, they typically will lead you to a poor self-image. You, you have a poor view of yourself. Anybody struggle with poor self-image? That is the weakness the devil is looking for. You, when you have a poor self-image, the way that you look at yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm this, I'm that, what the devil is doing is he's waiting for him, to, he's waiting to see you in the moment of where your poor self-image is revealed, that's when he's going to begin to accuse you. That's when he's going to begin to attack you and keep you beat down. You see, if I have a poor self-image, then I don't know my true identity. You see, God has already given you your identity. But so often, we fall into the devil's trap all the time because we know that the Bible says, and let me ask you this, does God make accidents in any of His creation to go, oops, that's not what a tree was supposed to look like. I dropped it. No. So there's no accidents. Does God make mistakes? And yet some of us have fallen into the accusations of the devil when he's told you that you're not good enough, that you're an accident, and that you're a mistake. That's a lie. You have forgotten then who you are. And so today, we're going to remind the devil who we are. Today, you're going to start fighting back. Today's the day that you're going to start taking your homes back, your marriages back, your families back. We're going to be done letting the devil use his same tactics over and over and over in our lives. You guys ready? Yeah. Buckle up. All right. So, no one beginning any form of treatment feels good about themselves. Okay? Because they've fallen into the trap of the accuser. Now listen to this, the moment that you accept the accusation brought against you, this ends in regret. It's important that you understand this because I'm about to show you a Bible verse that talks about repentance versus regret. When you accept what the devil is saying to you, it will end in regret. Regret leads to depression. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. I want you to hear me. Godly sorrow. When, it's, when the sorrow is from God, in other words, when the sorrow that you're feeling because you messed up in your life is from God, it will lead you to repentance. Repentance is changing your mind. You call a sin a sin. I'm so sick and tired of us calling sin diseases. Oh, I've been diagnosed and we make all the excuses. Sin is sin. It is what it is. It's sin. Own it. You see, what happens is this. When we repent, see, godly sorrow, when it's from God and He convicts my soul, I want to get on my knees. I want to confess my sin and I want to turn from it. I don't want it in my life. That's repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. The truth will set you free. Have you ever noticed that when you confess your sin to God, God, this is what I did today and I made a mess of everything and you're, I'm so sorry, help me. How then all of a sudden you feel, the, just, you feel saved from that moment? Have, have anybody, like when you felt the forgiveness of God in that moment, that's salvation. 
not talking about the, the one-time salvation. I'm talking about like, I need saving all the time. I need a saving for myself sometimes. Sometimes your mouth starts running. And you're like, God, save me from my own mouth right now. Right? There's a, several of you are like, yeah, help me. All right. And this salvation, this, this godly sorrow leaves no regret. It leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, there's a difference between the repentance and the regret. That's what we need to focus on. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a reversal. It's a transformation. It's a change, a reformation. Regret is a sadness, a disappointment. It's caused in our life. So this regret, they're both feelings of sorrow. One's a godly sorrow. One's a worldly sorrow. One is from God. One is from the devil. Feelings of remorse. So when you have a feeling in your life where you just feel beat down, you made a mistake, and you feel beat down and beat down and beat down and beat down, and you feel so far from God that you can't even talk to Him. You guys know what I'm talking about? When you have sinned and you've fallen short of that glory and all of a sudden you begin to look back in your life and you're like, I can't even talk to God. I'm so far from Him. That's the accusation of the devil. That's not godly sorrow. That is accusations from the enemy. You need to know the difference. It'll save your life. Feelings of sorrow that leads you to confessing your sin. Being convicted by the Holy Spirit. You see the difference? Both are sorrowful. Both are feelings. However, one is produced by accusations of the enemy that leads to regret and ends in death. And the other is produced by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that leads to repentance, salvation, freedom. You want freedom in your life, then stop believing the accusations of the devil. Because if you're living in regret, you have no freedom in your life. How many of you have felt that regret? And you couldn't get out of it. It just hung over you. That is the enemy, not God. God doesn't want you to wallow in regret. He wants you to feel convicted that leads you to confess, that leads you to repent, that leads you to Him. He doesn't want you to say, well, I've messed up. I can't even talk to God right now. That's the devil. The devil will start telling you, you're too bad. How many of you have felt the devil tell you once before that you weren't good enough to be saved, that God couldn't forgive you, that you've messed up too much? That's the lies of the Satan. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what we're talking about here. So today, we're going to talk about the accuser. The accuser, someone who makes a claim that someone is doing wrong. That's what an accusation is. We're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 12. As you begin to turn in your Bible, we're going to go verse by verse for 11 verses. 11. All right? So I need you to buckle up. I need you to, to, to hone in. There's going to be some things possibly that you'll disagree with me, and that's okay. We're still going to be friends today. Because when we deal with anything that's possibly prophetic, meaning in the future hasn't happened yet, we all have different things that we've been taught in our life, and it may not match up with what I'm saying today. That's okay. The things that we have to agree on, Jesus, salvation, the gospel. But we're going to have some disagreements. I have two associate pastors in this church that are Assembly of God Pentecostals, and I grew up Mennonite. We don't agree on everything. Actually, I got three, four. I'm the only one who's not a Pentecostal in the, in the elder room, all right? Only one. And we work together great. 
We don't agree on everything. We don't have to agree on everything. So I want you to hear that, okay? Don't let the devil use that as a dividing point. But I will try to, my very best, explain this in the best way that I can, but I don't like just jumping to a verse and ignoring all the verses before. I'm building to a verse 11. That's what we're going to. But if I skip the first 10 verses, I feel like I'm not doing the Scripture proper justice. I like to stay in the context. So here we go. It's in gray. Gray means a historical recap right now. So the first several verses are talking about things that have happened in the past. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pains as she was about to give birth. Isaiah, the passages that are under are talking about the, the, the passages of leading up to Christ's birth. Okay, This is a, a historical um, revelation of the coming birth of Christ. It's already happened in our time, but this is how it starts off there in chapter 12. The next one, the next verse is 3 and 4. Then another sign. So this is after that sign, another sign appeared. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The red dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. She hadn't given birth, was about to give birth, so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. Matthew chapter 2 speaks of that as Jesus was being born, um, King Herod wanted to destroy all the children in hopes to destroy this Jesus that was born. Alright, so the red dragon is a descriptive of the devil. Now, verse 5. She gave birth to a son. Okay, Jesus. He will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Psalm 2.9, that's a direct quote from there. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 gives a foretelling of the Messiah to come and how he will rule um, and how he will oversee the world. Okay, those are those two passages. The second part of verse 5 says, And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. He was put in a tomb and he raised from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people. You following me? But he didn't stay there and he didn't have a second death, did he? The Bible talks about that he was walking with his disciples one day and was taken up to heaven in a cloud. That's Acts 1, 9 through 11 if you want to check me on it. So, Jesus was snatched up and he's sitting at the right hand of of his father on the throne. That's where he is right now. This is all historical. This has already happened. Jesus is there now. Now in the next verse, in verse 6, as we're getting ready to go, we're now dealing with prophetic stuff to come. It hasn't happened even as of today. So now we're dealing with verses that will happen. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her, for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. It's always interesting when they give very specific days because usually it will lead you to some place else that will help you. So if you read the book of Daniel chapter 9, you will begin to see how he talks about these different days and how these different years and weeks and all these types of things. It is taught that the tribulation to come has not happened yet. The tribulation to come lasts seven years. 
Half of seven years is three and a half years. Three and a half plus three and a half is seven. I graduated from Warsaw. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm sweating here a little bit. If the math gets any harder, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's 42 months. I had to do all this beforehand, all right? <laughs> so one of the things that we do know is the Antichrist throughout the Scriptures, and I have them all listed here, Revelation 13, the next chapter after this one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just got done teaching on that on the tidbits if you want to go back. Daniel chapter 9, Jesus himself in Matthew 24 spoke of all of these things. The Antichrist would come and, and every one of them lead to this point of where he's going to be set up as God in the temple. This is going to be the sign of everything's coming to an end. Okay? It hasn't happened yet, but what I'm wanting you to understand is that that day is coming. Okay? That's prophetic. Verse 7, right here, next verse. Then war broke out. Now your Bible might say and, um, depending on, on which translation you have. Mine said then. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Okay? So one of the things is this. I'm wanting you to know that everything leading up to this point, these things that are, that are on these green slides are things to come. They have not happened yet. Important. After, so all of those afters. Okay, now look at verse 8 and 9. I love this. This is my favorite part. Maybe. Part of it. I like it all. So anyways. But he was not strong enough. Okay? And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. Some people have, have kind of reinterpreted this as this was the, the, the fight that sent the devil to the Garden of Eden, but when you read the verses before verse 8 and 9, he was already there. So this is the war to come. And I'm going to show you another verse that will help the argument here. Right now what I want you to take notice is what I underlined. He wasn't strong enough. The devil is not strong enough. No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard he's attacking you, if you have God on your side, he's not strong enough. His lies can't win when you have God on your side. You see, the problem is, is that when we forget who God is, when you start underestimating who God is, God wins this fight. So stop letting the devil win when he has no way that she should win. So, he's not strong enough. When you resist him, he can't win. Because when you resist him, you resist him in the name that is above all names. Jesus. He's already lost. He's just trying to take as many of you with him. And he's trying to destroy your life to make you in, unproductive and unfruitful in the kingdom of God. That's all he's trying to do. He's already lost. He already knows. See, here's the thing. Last week, I'm watching the Chiefs game. I'm pretty pumped up after the first half. I'm like, there's no way we're losing this game. No one can beat the Chiefs. And I'm all fired up. And then all of a sudden, you're watching. You're like, oh, that wasn't good. Oh, that wasn't good. And then you start seeing the whole table turn, right? You're sitting here going, well, I don't know how this is going to end. <laughs> Probably going to come down to a coin flip. No, it's not. 
And then all of a sudden you're kind of down. And, but here's the thing. You know what the difference between what we're talking about and the Chiefs game? We know how this ends. We know how it ends. The devil loses. He's not strong enough. When we begin to realize the enemy is not strong enough to win in my life, you will begin to take back your home. You'll take back your marriage. You'll take back your kids. You'll take back your life. You'll take back your neighborhood. You need to know who God is. He wins. He wins. He wins. The devil is going to lose. When you give power to the devil, that's when we start losing. Woo! Come on now. All right. Where am I? Here. All right. Same verse. I want you to see this. He was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. They lost their place. After this battle, he loses his place. In other words, he loses the ability to go stand before God. Meaning that right now he still has the, the ability to present himself before God. Just read Job. You don't believe me? Read Job. Right now, the devil still, at this point, has the ability to go present himself to the Lord. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, the devil presents himself for the Lord. The Lord says, what are you doing? He says, hey, I'm traveling to and fro. And then the devil says, oh, have you considered Job? I have no one like him. There's no one like him. The devil says, well, and I'm paraphrasing. You guys read it for yourself. The devil then says, well, remove the hedge of protection that you've so nicely put around him and let me strike him down. Let me strike his life. Let me attack him. And then he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord allows him. I want you to picture this. You know, when you start thinking about this, this Job was my son's favorite book. I don't know why. It's kind of depressing sometimes to read that, especially at the beginning. You know, when the devil... When, when that hedge of protection was removed, the devil went after his children first. That man, Job, lost ten children in one day. Ten. All of his children. When Malachi passed away, I lost one child. And I didn't know I could breathe. I wanted to die. Every day I, I lay on the floor and I just wanted to die. I can't imagine if something would have happened and all my children would have been gone all at the same time. And you know what Job said? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be His name. And then it goes on to say in the book of Job, in all this, he did not sin against God. The devil still, he's still going up and down. He's still presenting himself. And that's one of the things I need you to understand that this war has not yet happened will not happen until the great tribulation. The devil still has access to the presence of God. And here's the question, is what's he doing when he's in the presence of God? The verses are going to show us. We're going to see this in verse 10 and 11. 
just because we're here does not mean that we're almost done. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, wow, we're only going through 11 verses. He's going really fast. Trust me, we're going to take our time in the last two. I had to get to this point. The devil, what is he doing in these last, when he's in the presence of God? Chapter 12, Revelation, verse 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven and say, Now have come salvation and power in the kingdom of our God, the authority of His Messiah, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. He's been defeated. He's done. So let's look at the first part. Real simple breakdown. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters. The accuser, the title given to the devil here, the enemy. Who is he accusing? Brothers and sisters. I want you to understand who he's accusing is brothers and sisters. In other words, the brothers and sisters in the Bible is used to describe Christians. The devil's not accusing lost people. They're already lost. They're already on the broad path. They're already on a, a, a destination of hell at this moment. He doesn't, he's not bothering with them. What he's doing is I want to find every Christian I can that's slipping up right now, and I want to accuse them. I want to point them out. I want to get God's attention and say, look, 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 your pastor lost his temper yesterday. That was me, by the way. Sheep, moving sheep. No, no. Sometimes, I was like, yesterday, trying to get sheep to go where I want them to. I'm like, I'll call them. They usually follow me. They didn't want to follow me. But I have Naomi in the back holding my dog and trying to teach him how to, you know, so we're not giving him free reign because he likes to run right in the middle of everything, and then they really scatter. So she's got him on a rope. And then he kind of takes off, and she falls kind of in the big turd mound that I have. She thought it was dirt. It's not hay. It's hay's not black. And um, so anyways, then she looks at me, and she has, she flared up in this moment of anger. I don't want to hold this dog. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because I was really having a good, pretty good moment, because it was kind of funny watching, and then all of a sudden, my anger just, I didn't even see it coming. Then go to the house, and I'm screaming. Go to the house. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, I'm writing a sermon on this. Like, literally. I'm going, I'm like, after I yell at my daughter, I'm going to have to go apologize now because I'm an idiot. And now I'm going to go to the house and I got to finish this thing. I got to sit up there and write about this. The, I know what the devil's saying. Hey, look at your pastor. You called that guy? Look at him. He's flying off the handle right now like an idiot. So I have two choices. I can allow myself to just wallow in regret because I did regret that for a moment. I can, I can wallow in regret and allow it to ruin the rest of the day. Or I know who my Savior is. I can go to Him and repent. Because I didn't want that. That's not what I wanted to do. That's not who I want to be. My greatest fear is because I, I struggle with anger. Um, you know, I'll just be honest with you. Um, that, it, it just comes. I, I don't even know where it's coming from. And then, but I don't want my kids to do that, right? I want to I set the example. I want to raise them up right. And so the thing is, is that I have to, I, I just know how much harder I got to work on it. I didn't. 
didn't even see it coming, and it just flew out. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what am I doing? Now, before, I would justify it and rationalize it and, 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 and hope that, you know, I'll just do something fun later and the kids will forget about it. Not anymore. I'm like, no, I'm owning that sucker. Repentance deals with confession. I'm confessing it. I'm going to go to my kid and tell him I'm an idiot. And I'm sorry. I don't want to be this guy. So he's accusing Christians, the brothers and sisters. An accuser is somebody who claims that someone has committed something. I want you to understand this. Just to accuse doesn't even have to mean that it's true. The devil doesn't care about lying. We're going to talk about lying next week. I always told you that I had a sermon in my back pocket about lying. It's coming next week. <clears throat> but the thing is, is that, you know, when he accuses, it doesn't even always have to be true. You know what? The devil doesn't always have to make untrue accusations either, does he? If we look in our lives deep enough, we can kind of say, you know what? He's accusing us for exactly what we're doing. But we still have an advocate. He's the accuser. All right, so let's look the next part of that. The accuser who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This is a Greek grammar. Is, it's present active participle, the, the word accuses here. Present active participle. I broke it down to make it kind of easy. Present tense means a continual action. It means that he's continually doing it. He's continually accusing you. That's why it says day and night. But he's the devil's constantly doing it. See, here's the thing. Is God, the devil's not always accusing you before God. You know what he really likes to do? He likes to make sure that you hear it. He likes to sit on your shoulder and tell you and remind you of all the bad things you've ever done just to take you out of the game. You feel so bad about yourself that you feel like there's no helping you. You allow yourself to follow in self-pity and regret. That's godly sorrow. I mean, that's worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. So, the active voice means that the devil, the enemy, he's doing all the action. God's not accusing you. Have you ever realized that? Have you, have you looked at the Jesus in the Bible and how Jesus really didn't accuse, he didn't walk around accusing and pointing fingers. People would be caught in sin. He would tell them, you, you need to stop, you know, go and sin no more. But he wasn't like the Pharisees when they brought out the woman caught in adultery, right? They brought her out and said, hey, the law says stoner. We caught her in the act. She's wrong. Stone her. And he, and he, and he said, then afterwards, he goes, where's your accusers? Well, they've all gone. Well, I, I, I condemn you not either. Go and sin no more. He didn't walk around throwing rocks at people. That's what the devil does. He wants us to be convicted of our sin so that on our own, we want to make it right. That's what He wants to do. He wants you to have such a heart condition to loving Him that when you do mess up, you go to Him and want to make it right. Have you ever thought about loving your spouse so much that when you mess up, you want to go to them and make it right? That's love. So God wants you to love Him so much that when you do something wrong, you want to go to Him and confess and repent and make it right. The devil says, no, don't, don't, you can't, you're, you're, you're so messed up, you can't even go to God right now. You need to sit here, you need to feel sorry for yourself, you need to sit in regret, and I want to destroy your life and tell you all the bad things about you. That's the devil. Participle is a verbal adjective. In other words, the devil is known by this. So when he shows up to heaven, all the angels are like, well, look, the accuser's back. 
Oh, look, there's the accuser. Yep, there he is. The accuser showed up. What I want you to understand is every one of you are known by your actions, good or bad. If you got a potty mouth, dude, that dude's got a potty mouth on him. Oh, cusses all the time. Maybe your, your bitter, angry mess. People know that, and they may not say it to your face, but like, oh man, that person's a bitter mess. They're angry all the time. Or it could be the other way around. Man, that person's always got a smile. They're always looking at the glass half full. They're awesome to be around. Your actions, you're known by whatever you do. You're known by your fruit, guys. That's straight out of Matthew 7. So the devil's known for this. So I want you to know this. Every time you sin, every time you sin, the devil is in the presence of God accusing you of what you've done. He's sitting on your shoulder reminding you of your failure. Satan is like a prosecuting attorney. Really, that's exactly what he's like. Because we know that the Bible talks about God as a judge. So he's sitting there as a prosecuting attorney making sure that not only God knows all the things that you've done, like, you could, like God doesn't already know, but he's wanting to make sure that you know what you've done, and he wants to make sure that everyone else knows what you've done. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's making sure that he's making a big spectacle of it. He wants everybody to know. So I want you to understand something about a strategy. This is something that's going to carry on through every one of these messages. You need, this is, you need to understand what he's trying to do. The accuser begins by accusing you of your failure, your sin, your shortcomings. The focus is completely on you messing up. That's where the devil starts. Everybody understand me? Everybody follow me, right? The devil starts with you and reminds you and tells you of everything you've done wrong. And he makes sure that it's right on your mind. Then the next thing he wants to do is he, he wants you to get so far into regret and depression and so into, into this self-defeat uh, that you are looking for some way to not feel so bad. Well, Now, the only way to not feel so bad is to take the focus off of you he then tries to convince you to turn your focus onto others by accusing them of their shortcomings because that makes you feel better. Every bully, kids hear me, every bully is the most insecure person in the school. The biggest bully is the biggest insecure person. Because a bully does one of two things. A bully, because of their insecurity, will beat themselves up and throw themselves into the ditch because they feel so badly about themselves, or they want to try to feel better about themselves, they'll beat you up and throw you into the ditch so they feel better. But it's insecurity. They don't feel good about themselves. So what I'm wanting you to understand is the devil wants you to have such a poor self-image, and then he wants you to live in regret so much that you have to try to figure out a way to take the focus off of you. So the only way you can do that is to begin focusing on others. Now the devil has won because now he doesn't even need to do it to you anymore because he's gotten you to do it for him. Now you joined his team. Think about it, guys. Haven't we all done this? Man, I've messed up. You, you feel so that the accusation, see, the Holy Spirit convicts me that leads me to what? confession, repentance, and change. The devil, he accuses me that leads me to regret and attacking others. When somebody is caught in sin, they do one of two things. They confess and repent, 
or they shift the blame to everyone else. It's only two options you have. Or you try to lie out of it, which never works anyways. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were looking for a way. There's a, they were in worship service, much like this. They weren't quite as rowdy as us. But um, they were in a worship service, and a man showed up with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees were watching Jesus because they wanted to accuse him. They wanted to find a way to destroy Jesus. So they sat there and watched to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath day. See how they began to do the devil's work? They're church people. They were in church. They were there to worship the king of kings. And instead, they're looking for a way to accuse someone else to make them feel better about themselves. That's the devil's game. Stop playing it. When we fall into this trap, here's what we do. We justify ourselves by pointing out the sins of others. I might be sinning, but did you see what someone else did? Because what we do is we want to take what? The focus off of myself. So it's not about confession. It's not about repentance. What's it about? It's about shifting. It's about me not really taking responsibility. What I really want to do is I want, to, I want you to look, look at that person. I'm not as bad. Look at that person. I'm not as bad. The other one is rationalizing it. We then say, well, you know what? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's. Everybody's doing it, so that's okay. If, if the whole world is doing this sin, it must be okay. It's not. It doesn't matter if the whole wide world all does the same sin. God still has the same word. We just sang about the same God. He's not changing just because the world is. Here's the thing. It all leads to this, self-righteousness. The act of proclaiming your self-righteous. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Think about it. That's what self-righteous is. It's an act of proclaiming yourself righteous in the view of others. Well, look at all these other people. They're doing all these things. I'm doing better than them. I'm righteous. You know what real righteousness is? It's from God. And he compares you to his word. That's where righteousness comes from. Not from me doing better than somebody else. And when we start falling into this trap, if we're not careful, we will become a son or daughter of the accuser. Now is the point where you're sitting there going, is this borderline heresy? Or is this could actually be the truth? The only way I can show you this is if there's any other place in the Bible where God would call people child of the devil. So let's just see. Oh, there it is. John 8, 44. I was ready. I came ready, okay? He's talking to Pharisees. Jesus is talking to Pharisees. These are people who studied their whole life in seminaries, went to college to be pastors. Understand the Pharisees. They, you know, we look at them and we're like, oh, they're the bad guys in the story. They had studied their whole entire life the Bible. They knew the Bible better than anyone else. They just missed all the important stuff when it happened. He called, the, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. <whistles> Come on. You belong. You belong to him. You belong to him. And you want to carry out his father's desires. What he's saying is this. 
When you begin to walk down the road of sin and you want to stay there, you are now doing what the devil wants you to do and not what God wants. See, that's the path. That's why Jesus said, narrow is the path that leads to life everlasting. Not many find it because they don't want to do it. But broad is the path that leads to destruction and many enter in by it. When I begin to do and I'm not talking about a little trip up here. I'm talking about when I give over myself and I do what the devil's wanting me to do, I'm doing his will, not God's will. So the question is, who do you belong to? And maybe this is that point where we need to have the revelation of our life right now saying, I need to take back my own life right now. I need to let the devil know that he has no longer has a hold on me and I'm not going to do his work anymore. When you complain about people, you gossip about people, you, com you, you criticize them, you murmur about them, and you slander them, you're doing the devil's work. Come on. Come on. Don't act like we don't do it. When we get mad at somebody, we pick up the phone and we hammer them. We get on Facebook and we put out all of our frustration like we're big strong. It's a coward act. We get on Facebook and we slam people down. That's the devil's work. God called us to a holy life. So we need to understand that, hey, if I'm going to walk down this road, who is my father? Because a child does the will of his father. This is hard, isn't it? It's not easy. It's not an easy teaching. So how do we defeat them? That's what we need to talk about. How do we defeat the accuser? In verse 11, I love this. They triumphed over him. The they is not God. It's not talking about God. It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about those brothers and sisters he's been accusing. In other words, you and me fit into they. That it, we are they. So we are they. That we're a part of this. So we can triumph over the accuser. And so what's so great is I'm about to unload it on you. Not, not that I haven't already. So, by the blood of the Lamb. Come on now, look at that. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the, by the word of their testimony. Woo! Come on. Come on. All right. I'm feeling it. So they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, a lot of times we see victory differently than God sees victory. I need you to listen. I need you to hear me. There's never been a time in my lifetime where I've seen death come so rapidly and so quickly to so many. Let's be, I mean, when I was young, it didn't seem like people died very often. And now it seems like people die all the time, all the time, all the time. So young, all the time. Every time I, my, I look at my phone, I'm almost halfway afraid because who, who's gone now? All the time. This, the way that God sees death is different than how you and I see death. Death is actually the victory. Hear me, when you are in Christ, that is the victory. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of a saint. When a saint dies, it's precious to God because he knows that at that moment, death lost. You see, here's the deal. I remember watching my son Malachi taking his last breath. The, 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 the enemy, death, grabs a hold of my son thinks he wins. And the moment that Malachi took his last breath, 
He woke up in glory. It's over. He lost. He lost again. I want you to understand that death is the victory. He says they didn't love their lives. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we die, we win. We have to change our perspective. Death isn't losing the fight. I can't say, oh, he lost the fight with cancer. He won. He won. He didn't lose. They triumphed. Because you know what all of this is about? Paul talks about it all the time in his epistles. He constantly and constantly and constantly came back and said the prize of, of the call, the heavenly call, we are called heavenward. Our calling and the prize of our faith is what? The prize is heaven. That's what we're fighting for. You see, we get so caught up in the earth and the here and the now that we forgot what we're actually fighting for. We forgot what we're actually hoping for. And if you've listened to my preaching before Malachi's passing, I didn't talk about heaven very much. And now that's all I can think about there's never been a time that I am so desperate. I can't wait to go home. I can't wait to go home. I, I, I was always afraid of death. I didn't want to face it. I didn't want to do it. And, and I, I was like, man, and, and I, how long, you know, I, I was always, I wanted to live a long time. And now I don't care if I live a long time. I can't wait to go home because that's what my heart is aching for. It didn't used to ache for heaven. It used to ache for a better church, a better life now. I used to be so focused on a better life now. I ache for heaven. I ache for the moment that I get to wake up in glory and see Jesus and not have any more cancer and not have any more death and sickness and disease and, and, and sin. I want to wake up in heaven. I can't wait for that. See, guys, death is not losing it's the moment you win. In, 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 in college, we had what was called systematic theology, and we would study salvation as a whole bunch of big words. Justification and sanctification and perseverance, which is not a big word, but it's, it is long. Um, sp spell it. So uh, then it gets the last part of salvation. You know what the last doctrine of salvation is? The last one is glorification. That's death. Glorification is actually the highest peak of salvation. It's the greatest part of it. Guys, we got to get to that place of understanding that this is not my home. This isn't my home. So they triumphed over the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So let me break this down a little bit. So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about the word of their testimony. The word testimony comes from a Greek word, martuia. Martuia comes from a Greek word, martis, where we get the English word martyr. Martyr is not what you think. We have always been thought of that a martyr is somebody who dies for their faith or been persecuted. That's not what martyr means. It's what we've turned it into. Martyr or martis, where it came from, is actually a legal term. When you're in a courtroom and they call you up as a witness, you are a martis or martyr to stand and speak the truth. 
they won over the accuser by speaking the truth about God in their lives. It's kind of like this, devil, you need to know who I am. I'm a child of God and you don't have right to be in my house. You don't get to be in my marriage. I'm taking it back. I'm a child of the king. See ya. You see, that's what the word of your testimony is. It's reminding the devil who you are. And you have to know who you are to speak a word of testimony. We need to do that more often in our marriages, don't we? Come on. Husbands, you need to step up. And you need to start speaking a word of testimony over your wife and over your children and over your house. And wives, if the husband won't, you do it. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be. When you get saved, it says you will be a witness. The word there is martis. It's where martyria comes from. As for us, they were under arrest in Acts chapter 4, verse 20. Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin. They'd been arrested for preaching Jesus. And they told them, you stop preaching Jesus. And they could be killed right now because this is how they did it to Jesus. Right now, they could be killed depending on what they say next. And here's what they say next. As for us, we cannot help speaking of what we have seen and heard. That's a testimony. It's reminding the devil who you are. And you know what? Sometimes when you remind him who you are, you're actually reminding yourself who you are too. Come on. You know what defeats insecurity? Identity. All right. The blood of the Lamb. In Him, these are three passages I, I love about this. When we're t talking about the blood of the Lamb, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. For Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5-7. But uh, with the precious blood of Christ, a Lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1-19. These are passages talking about this. What's interesting about the blood of the Lamb, and I love how it talked about the Passover Lamb. This is God is genius. God is all wise. Of course He's a genius. But back in the book of Acts, when the people, the children of Israel were getting ready to leave Egypt, there was one more plague to come. The angel of death was coming. God was going to send the worst plague possible. And the only way out of this is to take a perfect lamb, you cut it, its throat, you take its blood, and you put its blood over your doors and over your windows. And the Passover lamb, or the, 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 the angel of death would then pass over your house because of the blood of that lamb. The lamb covered your sin. The blood of that lamb covered your sin. So then all through history, all through history, the Jews, every year, what we would celebrate as Easter, or Resurrection Day, they celebrate Passover. Every year they take a lamb and they sacrifice it for the sins of to cover the sins of all of Israel. Do you want to hear something amazing? You guys ready? Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. Come on. Huh? So here's what's so, so crazy is this all had to happen just right. Jesus had to get arrested. And you know what? For this to happen, his enemies were the ones that were going to actually have to make it happen. Jesus couldn't say, hey guys, could you go ahead and just skip all this and crucify me on Friday just to make sure that it all works out perfectly? The enemy had to 
disobey their own laws of how juries work, and they had to do it all by night cover, which was against their own laws, to get Jesus to be crucified, and He was crucified. And you know what's amazing? While He was on the cross was when they were preparing their own little tiny lamb at the temple. The lamb was already on the cross. At the moment of His death, the curtain tore because sin has already been dealt with, and that's why the curtain tore in the great temple. They had no need for the curtain anymore. That's the Passover lamb. I want to tell you, this is my last slide, I want to talk to you about redemption. I love this word, redemption. It's so cool. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 16, whatever you obey, you're a, sin, you're a slave to. So if you obey God, you're a slave to God. That's why Paul was constantly calling himself a slave. A bond servant is the same thing as a bond slave to Christ. So this is over and over and over, Paul saying this. So in James or John 8, 34, then Jesus basically is saying, like, if, if it's sin that you're a slave to, or if it's sin, then you're a slave to sin. So whatever you're obeying, you're a slave to it. So you, if you're going to follow the ways of the world and you're going to sin in the world, you're a, you become a slave to it. Anyone who's ever dealt with addiction knows what it is to be a slave to something, right? But you know what? Addiction, drugs, alcohol is not the only things. Pornography is not the only things to be addicted to. What about anger? Have you ever been a slave to anger? Come on. Control? Anybody, anybody got some control issues? They got to control everything in life? Slave to whatever has a hold of you, right? A slave can't pay his own debt. That's what happens. We can't, we can't pay for our sin, right? The wages of sin is what? Death. So the only way that you can pay for your sin is to die. But that's not really what God is wanting for your life right now, is it? not that kind of death. So he redeems you. A redeemer was somebody who would come to a slave owner and say, I'm redeeming that person. What's their debt? I'm paying it. So in other words, the blood of the lamb, Jesus went to the cross and paid your debt you couldn't pay to redeem you. In other words, what it really means is that he bought you back. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, don't you, don't you know that you were bought at a price? That you're not your own anymore? You were bought. God bought you back. You were a slin, sin. You were a slave to that sin. You were a slave to an addiction. You, are, you were shackled up to whatever was causing you the jealousy, the anger, the unforgiveness, whatever it was. You're a slave to it. And God bought you out of it. So quit living in it. When you have truly been redeemed, you don't have to go back to the garbage. You have been bought out of it. So when you are redeemed, quit letting the devil lead you right back to the same garbage. I have been redeemed. That means I've been bought out of this. Today, some of us need to be bought back. Some of us today need to lay some stuff down and say, God, I'm done with this. We already know that he's... The blood's already redeemed. It's already, the redeeming power is already on the table. It's not like it's not there. It's already done. We just need to confess, repent, and receive. Hear me. Confess, repent, and receive.
confess, repent, and receive. That's what we need.